Thank you so much to Carl and the team uh, for the way they've led us in worship and uh, by God's providence, the songs we sung this morning prepare us or ought to prepare us for the word. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and our focus this morning is verse 3 to 10, but we'll start at the last part of verse 2. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's hear it together. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For he brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Only so far in the reading of God's Word may reform our lives to a truth. We've prayed already, but let me pray for us again. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, its music in the sinner's ears, life, health, and peace. Lord, we do ask that the songs that we've just sung, that Jesus is enough. We pray that these songs would be true of our hearts this morning, that we would see in Jesus all that we need for life and godliness, that his name would be sweetness to our souls, music to our ears, and that his love would animate our love, that it would motivate us and move us to cling more and more to him so that you would be honored, Father, and that the Spirit would be at work in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I think I've shared this before, and I'm going to share it again. But in one of his books, John Owen rightly points this out. He says, The greatest contest in heaven and earth is about the affections of the poor worm we call man. What are the affections? Well, they are the desires of our hearts. They are, as one author says, the feet of our souls. They are what drag us to something and lead us to run away from something else. And, and therefore, realize whatever has your heart, whatever has the inclinations of your heart, whatever has your affections, in effect, really has you. Jesus would say it this way in Mark 6, 21, Matthew 6, 21. 
He says there, for wherever your treasure is, that is, wherever the thing is that you value most, that thing which you desire most, that thing which you prize the most, that thing which your affections are set upon, there your heart is, and where your heart is, and whatever your, has your heart, ultimately has you. Uh, listen again to Owen. Our affections are upon the matter are all. They are all we have to give or bestow. They are the only power of our soul whereby we may give ourselves and become another's. Therefore, to whomever we give our affections, we give our all, ourselves and all that we have. And to whoever we do not give our affections, no matter what we give them, we give them nothing. Now, now, if this is true, dear friends, if this is true, then the question becomes this morning, what has got your heart? Who has your affections? To where are the feet of your soul running towards? Now, now why bring this particular aspect of the affections up? Because Paul in this passage reveals us that, that these false teachers who have infiltrated the church are a people whose affections are not on Christ. Instead of running to Christ, they run beyond Christ. They pursue another lover, and that love is the love of money. And when we realize this, when we see this, then, it, then we're reminded that the church of Ephesus becomes a perpetual reminder to us to not allow the loves of this world to drown out the love that we should have for Christ. Don't forget Revelation 2.4. Don't forget Jesus' sober words to the church in Ephesus. I have this against you. He says that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You realize Jesus addresses that problem because this is a problem that we still in many ways deal with. How easy it is for us to, to have our love for God grow cold. How easy it is for our love for Christ to start drifting and wandering away. How easy it is for our hearts to start tasting and delighting more and more in the pleasures and the profits of this world. To think through this a little bit, when you've been three this past week, tell me, where did your thoughts naturally go? In your free time? Where did your desires run? Where was your heart resting? How much time this week has been spent delighting and enjoying Christ and the things of God compared to the time spent delighting in the things of this world? Dear friends, we need to heed the counsel of Owen for to whoever we give our affections, we give our all. Whatever has your affections, whatever has the desires of your heart, has you. And I'd venture to say this is Paul's concern here. Paul warns Timothy, he warns the Ephesian church, and he warns us, be careful of misplaced affections. 
Now we can close our Bible and go home because that's my main point this morning. But I've got three other points that really emphasize this point. And so as we walk our way through this text, I want you to see three things that kind of examine and analyze this main point of guarding your affections. The first thing I want us to consider is the problem of gospel loss in verse 3 to 5. In this section, Paul, for the third time in this letter, directly addresses the issue of these false teachers. And in verse 3, we are reminded again that these false teachers were teaching a different doctrine, a heterodoxical doctrine. Uh, what is this different doctrine? Well, he, he doesn't repeat what he says in chapter 1, the fact that they were emphasizing myths and genealogy and speculation. Rather, he, he comes to the essence of, of all false doctrine in the sense. And he gives two descriptions. Firstly, he says that it is a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So another way to translate that, the healthy words about the Lord Jesus now, now, what are the healthy words, the life-giving words about Jesus? Well, it's the gospel, right? It's the good news that, that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior for sinners. And so Paul is saying what makes this doctrine different, what makes this teaching unhealthy and sickly is the fact that it's not consistent with Christ. It's not aligned with the gospel. It's a different doctrine because its content is the void of the gospel. It does not agree with the sound words about Jesus. But then he says, secondly, that it's doctrine that does not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, as some commentators point out, the sound words about Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness are, are synonymous phrases. They're phrases that speak about the same teaching. The first addresses the content of the teaching. The second, the effect of the teaching. And so what Paul is saying is that these false teachers are teaching a different doctrine that is not only inconsistent with Christ, but it's inconsistent with Christ-likeness. It's not only devoid of the gospel, it's devoid of the fruit of the gospel, that is, godliness. And we need to see and remember that this is a central concern for Paul in this letter. For the church to be healthy, for you to be a healthy Christian, there must be a preservation of the gospel on the one hand and the production of godliness on the other. There must be the place for, for orthodoxy and orthopraxy. There must be right teaching that leads to right living. The problem with these false teachers is they've lost the first and failed to produce the second. They've lost the gospel and therefore haven't displayed godliness. And dear church, know this. If we lose either one of these two, we become sickly and unhealthy, like these false teachers. To have the gospel without godliness is, is licentiousness. It is to live in the flesh. But to have godliness without the gospel is legalism. And both dishonor Christ. And for us to be a healthy church, for us to be healthy Christians, 
We hold deeply and, and, and meaningfully to the gospel, and we should behold its fruit in our lives, which is godliness. But look how Paul teases this out in verse 4 to 5. He points out the lack of their godliness, these false teachers' godliness, in their character. He says, verse 4, that they are puffed up with conceit while they understand nothing. That is to say, they are stupidly ignorant. They are foolishly proud. They seek after vain glory while being ignorant. He also points out that their godlessness is seen in their conduct. Verse 4, he says that they have an unhealthy, sickly craving for controversy. They, they quarrel about words. Instead of building up, instead of caring for the church, pursuing peace, they're all about themselves. They're all about the next fight to prove themselves, to exalt themselves. And you see their lack of godliness also in the consequences of their teaching. Verse uh, 4 to 5a, Paul says they produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction among people. Because of these false teachers and their gospelless doctrine, the, the church is unhealthy and the church is splintered and divided. So Paul highlights for us here their lack of godliness in their character, their conduct, as well as their consequences. But, but also notice, he describes the cause of their ungodliness. Look at the last part or the middle of verse 5. Paul says they are depraved in mind. The idea is just as rust uh, corrupts steel, so their thinking has been corrupted. And how has it been corrupted? He says they've been deprived of the truth. In the pastoral epistles in this letter, the truth is shorthand for the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. And as we've seen already, these false teachers are devoid of the gospel. And as a result, you see the depravity around them and in them. But the question then becomes, how have they been deprived of the truth? What has led them to, to leave behind the gospel? What has, what has caused them to, to turn from the sound words about Jesus? Look at what Paul says next about them at the end of verse 5. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. May I suggest to you, there lies the root problem with these false teachers. There lies the cause of their loss of the gospel and godliness. These are greedy, covetous men who, as we see in verse 10, are lovers of money. They've abandoned the gospel, not just to exalt themselves, as we see in chapter 1, verse 7, but they've abandoned it to enrich themselves. They thought that religion and the things of God is a means to enrich themselves. Perhaps I can put it this way. Their lack of godliness was a result of their gospel loss, and their gospel loss was a result of their greed. Or another way to say this, they've allowed their love of money to drown out their love of Christ. Do you see how important your affections are? Your affections will either lead you to Christ or away from Him. 
Yeah, for good reason, Proverbs says, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. Guard the desires of your your affections. I I wonder, dear church family, in what ways have we perhaps allowed another love to drown out our love for Christ? I I wonder in what ways we've allowed gospel loss to to slip in into our thinking and our hearts. Perhaps Perhaps you've become less concerned for truth and the Word, Perhaps we've lost the wonder of saving grace. We, we've just assumed things. We, we neglect our great salvation. Perhaps we've become selfish and conceited. We think we know it all. We think we've arrived. Perhaps we've grown tired of prayer and, and fellowship and worship. We just see these things not as an end, but just a means to an end. Perhaps we've grown to love the comforts of this world, its joys, its flashing lights. But what we need to see, whether in small or big ways, gospel loss easily creeps in. It, 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 It creeps in gradually, and an insincere godliness settles in. I think we would do well to remember the example of Demas, if you remember, if you read Colossians 4:14 4, and Philemon 24, you see that Demas was a gospel worker alongside Paul. He was with Paul. He saw all that God had done through Paul. He saw conversions. He, he, he beheld and understood the gospel. Yet somehow at, at the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4:10, Paul says, "For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me." And the idea here is he hasn't just deserted Paul. Now, in his love for this world, he's deserted Christ. He's abandoned the gospel. And realize this didn't happen immediately. It is subtle. And therefore, we need to be wary of allowing our affections to settle on this world. We need to be wary of of drifting from the Lord Jesus Christ, of, of losing sight of the gospel of losing sight of all that God has done for us. Not thinking that we can graduate from it and move beyond it. Now, how do we keep ourselves, however, from gospel? How do we we keep our affections on Christ? How do we yield our heart's desires again and again to Him? Well, one way is to see the inestimable value of the gospel. One way is to see how rich and profitable the gospel is. That leads me to the second thing I want you to see this morning, the profit of godliness. You see that in verse 6 to 8. Before he, he points out how dangerous and how destructive greed is, Paul notes that in one sense the, the false teachers have a point. Namely, there is gain to be had in godliness. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 7. Remember Paul's exhortation there. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Paul is making the same point here. 
There is great value. There is great gain in godliness. But it's godliness coupled with contentment, not covetousness. What does that mean? It means it is a godliness that is content with God, not a godliness that wants something from God, something better than God. No, it is a godliness that sees God and delights in God and is satisfied in Him. We saw a glimpse of this in chapter 4, verse 10. After Paul noted that godliness is great gain, he explained it this way. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. See, true godliness is a life consecrated to God. That's what that word godliness means. It's a life consecrated to God, a life that hopes in Him, that is content with Him because there is none greater than Him. Think of Asaph, who so beautifully said, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Think of David who yielded himself to God, saying, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. See, that's what godliness with contentment is. It is being satisfied with God as your sufficiency. Now, why use that word sufficiency? Well, the Greek word there for contentment has that connotation. In fact, that word is rich, has a rich history in Greek philosophy. In fact, the Stoic philosophers, uh, was, that was their, their catchphrase, their key term, and that word can be described as self-sufficiency. See, for the Stoic, it was him against the world. It was him against all his circumstances. It was him against the trials and the troubles of life. And where did the Stoic find his confidence? Where did his, he, he find his hope? Well, well, in himself, in his own ability, in his own self-mastery. You sometimes hear people say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Guess what? That's not Christianity. That's Stoicism. It's this idea that my hope and my confidence is in me, in what I'm able to do. And realize this isn't what Paul has in mind here. No, for Paul, contentment isn't about self-sufficiency. No, it's about God's sufficiency. It's about what and who we have in our God. Remember Philippians 4.11 Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is that secret? What is the thing that allows him to be content? Verse 13, I can do all things. I'm able in all things through him who strengthens me. See, our contentment is based on who we have in our God. Not based on our circumstances, not based on what we do and do not have in this life. That seems to be Paul's point in verse 7 to 8. He says, therefore, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He's saying, because we came into this world with nothing and because we leave this world with nothing, we ought to be content with whatever we have, either, even if it's the basics like food and clothing. I realize when we leave this world, there's nothing you can take with you except God and the blessing that he gives 
And, dear friends, therein lies the prophet of godliness. True godliness. Godliness with contentment is profitable because it sets its hopes on the living God. In the living God, we have all we want or could need. I discovered a Latin phrase. Sorry if I geek out now and quote you a Latin phrase. It says this habit, omnia qui habit, habitum omnia, which means he, he has all that has the haver of all. I love that phrase. And the point is this, to have God is to have all. To have God is to have no lack. When in darkness, he is our light, Psalm 27. When in danger, he is our refuge, Psalm 46.1. When in need, he is our provider, Genesis 22.14. When grieving, he is our comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. When discouraged, he is our hope, Psalm 42.5. When in war, he is our peace, Romans 16.20. When suffering, he is our grace, 1 Peter 2 or 5.10. When uncertain, he is our rock, Isaiah 26, 4. In weakness, he is our strength, Psalm 59, 9. In death, he is our glory, 2 Corinthians 13, 18. And we could go on and on. The point is this. There is no greater gain than getting God. The un and the only way to get God is through the gospel. There you see the gain of keeping your eyes and your heart fixed in Christ on the gospel. So it's the good news that by faith in Jesus, the only Savior of sinners, you become God's, and God becomes yours. And so one way we, we keep our eyes and our affections and our longings on Christ is to remember the prophet that we have in our God. For the believer here, believe this, you have everything. It, it might not seem that way, but you have everything you could need. Uh, Romans 8, 31 to 32, Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love Matthew Henry's comment on this. He says, Can it be imagined that God should do the greater, i.e., giving his eternal son and not do the less? Should he give such a great gift for us when we were enemies? And can he deny us any good now that through Christ we are his friends and children? And this is what I love about his comment. Thus we may by faith argue against our fears of want. Dear friends, when that fear of want, when that feeling of emptiness challenges you and feel that fear of, of lack, we ought to by faith look to what our God has done for us. Matthew Henry continues, he says, He that hath prepared a crown and a kingdom for us will be sure to give us enough to keep us on our way to that kingdom and crown. And so, dear believer, take heart in this. Believe upon your God as your God, in whom you have everything you could want. But for the unbeliever, you believe this, that outside of Christ, 
you have nothing. Ephesians 2.12 says, without Christ you are without God and without hope. Yes, you may enjoy God's common grace now. You may enjoy his many gifts in this world. But beyond this world, there's nothing for you. Why? Because you do not have the haver of all. To paraphrase one Puritan, what profit is there to have the cistern but not the fountain? I love this quote by Bernard Clairvaux. He said, That is true and high joy, which is not conceived or received by the creature, but that which is received from the Creator. Which when you receive, no man shall take from you. We aren't to compare all other joys is sorrow, all sweetness, grief, all that sweetness is bitter, every comely thing is filthy, and lastly, whatever made the light is troublesome. What he's saying this is, is this, in comparison to joy and having God in Christ, every other joy in this life will be turned to bitterness. Because you do not have the source of that joy. Dear unbeliever, wrestle with this this morning. Without God, you are without hope. And so would you not turn to Him? Would you not trust in Him? Would you not turn to the one who has all and who longs for your affections? So that's one way we keep our, our eyes upon Christ, our affections to Him. We remember the prophet of the gospel, that in the gospel there is godliness, there is contentment in getting God. But thirdly, the final thing I wanted to see is the plunge of greed. The plunge of greed in verse 9 to 10, Paul particularly focuses upon the misplaced love of these false teachers, which is this love of money, this greedy, covetous desire for more. And, and this desire has led them away from Christ. And, and what's interesting, in verse 9 to 10, uh, Paul describes this greed as following a, a logical progression. I think it's helpful for us to, to see this progression. Firstly, he says there's a longing. He describes it as a, a desire to be rich. That word for desire describes a, a will, a want, but not just a desire for something. It's a desire that plans to get it. And dare I say, it's, it's an affection that, that leads you somewhere. Where does it lead you? Secondly, there's a lure. Paul says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Again, that word describes a trial, and in this instance, a trial that exposes you to sin and danger. I imagine you're a fish swimming in the sea, and before you is a floating worm, and it looks tempting, it looks delicious, but it's a temptation. And where, what will be the result if you bite it, if you take hold of it? Well, there's a trap, there's a hook. That's the next thing Paul says. There's a trap. There's a snare. Paul says, this covetous desire lures you into a snare, and this snare is the snare of Satan. Whenever Paul uses that in this letter, in the apostle epistles in chapter 3, verse 7, and Second Timothy 6, 26, it's, it's Satan's snare. It's through these temptations, through these desires that he takes hold of you. And what happens 
when you bite that hook? What happens when you take hold and fall into this trap? Well, Paul says there's lust. Paul says, in the snare you fall into many senseless and harmful desires. In this context, this describes a lust. It describes a lust that consumes you. Uh, Titus 3, 3, Paul uses that same word and he describes it as, as us before our salvation. Before our salvation, we were slaves led astray by our passions and our pleasures. And the idea seems to be this, when you fall for this lust, when you've become ensnared by this unyielding desire, then you're essentially living like an unbeliever again. You're foolish as you once were hostile in mind. And what is the end result of staying in that place? Well, there's ruin, there's loss. Paul says those living in this lust plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. The Greek there is quite interesting. The idea seems to be this, just as a ship sinks leading to the loss of life, those with this lust for greed drown themselves and leads to the loss of life and ruin. But, but realize this greed doesn't just lead to ruin in the next life. No, it's, it's ruin in this life even. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What kinds of evil? Wait, we just look at our society. Look at what greed has produced. Lying, thievery, strife, jealousy, arrogance, injustice, murder. And Paul says it's through this craving, through this lust, through this longing, this aspiration, through this affection that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The point is this. Greed plunges one into a world of evil. Greed, the strong longing for more, if left to itself, will lead to loss. It will lead to ruin and destruction. But like a cancer, it will eventually end with you in the grave. Now, if this plunge into ruin starts with longing, if it starts with our desires and our affections, then is it not absolutely vital that we guard our hearts? It's not vital that we safeguard our affections, that we keep our love for Christ as the preeminent love of our life. Paul would seem to say that the two great motives to not shift from the gospel, to not allow our affections to turn from Jesus, is to remember the profit of godliness, but also to remember the plunge of greed. And may the Spirit help us to to keep our love for Christ preeminent. I, I read of this story of Elizabeth Payson Prentice. Uh, she's an example of someone who kept her love for Christ preeminent even when she lost everything. Uh, she was a 19th century author and hymn writer, and most of her life, her life she was confined to her bed as an invalid. Her husband also likewise suffered from, from ill health. And to cap it all off, to make it all worse, in 1852, both her young children died in a space of three months. By no means was her life easy, yet amidst all her suffering and all her pain, 
she endured with one great desire that consumed her. Listen to what that desire was in one letter that she wrote. She said this, to love Christ more, this is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Down in the bowling alley and out in the woods and on my bed out driving when I'm happy and busy and when I'm sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. Dear friends, may that be the cry of our hearts. May that be the bent of our affections to love Christ more, to delight in our God more, to rest in Him more. Owen is right. There is a raging warfare for your affections. And Owen says, it's no wonder that the world wants your affections. It wants to destroy you. But the wonder... The condescending grace of God is this, that He desires your affections. Look at the cross to the ends that He will go. And therefore, should we not yield ourselves to Him? Should we not yield all our affections and our heart's desires to Him? And may that be our desire this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that there is indeed none like you. There is no God beside you, no God before or after you. You are the one true living God, the eternally blessed God. And as Father, Son, and Spirit, you have seen fit to, to create us, and not just to create us, to redeem us, to offer sinful men like us a way of salvation, not just to be saved, but to get you. And dear Lord, I pray that this this morning that all of us, myself included, that we would again delight in you, that we would again see you as the preeminent lover of our soul, as the one who is worthy of our hearts. Would you not help us again this morning to guard our hearts, to watch over our affections as we live in this world with all its lights and glamours, all its pleasures, all its profits. Help us to see where our true treasure lies. It's in your Son, in you. And so help us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.